0: 25 years ago, I knew exactly what and how and when and why everybody needed to eat. I knew exactly how many grams of this or that they needed. I I would never have certain foods in my house. I would never consume certain foods. I I would think less of others who did. You know, time and life uh, has a way of uh, granting a little bit of wisdom. And you know this, Mark, that you deal with athletes at the, at the highest level of sport. A lot of these things that you've been taught that you must do, you find out that a lot of these rules that you assumed were, were hard and fast are not.
1: Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Bubbs, Performance Nutritionist, and this is season number seven, episode number nine. We've got the second annual Football Performance Nutrition Summit kicking off this week, Tuesday, June 13th. 14 incredible speakers from pro and college football, as well as subject matter experts across sleep, immunity, hydration, supplementation, biomarker testing, and more. If you haven't signed up for this free event, then just head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash summits. That's athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash summits and join us there. You can register at any point in the event. So on that note, in today's episode, you'll be hearing from clips from last year's inaugural Football Performance Nutrition Summit with expert guests like Matt Nickel, founder of BioSteel, director of player health and performance at the CFL's Hamilton Tiger Cats and strength coach to pro athletes and elite athletes across multiple sports. You'll hear from Kate Calloway, director of performance nutrition from the Carolina Panthers, Will Greenberg, assistant strength coach, nutritionist Buffalo Bills, Dr. Matt Frakes, Ph.D. Director of Nutrition at LSU Football, and Pratik Patel, former nutrition lead at the NFL's New York Giants. All right, let's get started. To kick things off, Matt Nickel will share some of the wisdom that he's gained over the last 25-plus years of working in elite sport. The theme of the talk, talking about kind of coaching your former self, I'd like to actually just jump in in your early career and talk a little bit about nutrition like at what point did you you know really get into nutrition or realize that hey this is a this is something that i'm going to implement with myself and with my athletes when you're starting out in the coaching side
0: uh so on, on a personal note i would say probably it was when i was 15 or 16 and it was you know reading reading bodybuilding magazines and yeah. you know you know becoming uh obsessed with consuming protein <laughs> nice and shakes uh, from a, and, and that sort of carried over to my time as a coach i mean that was sort of the, a large a large influence like if, if i talk about uh, nutrition uh, it was protein and supplements you know I, I don't think i had a good grasp of nutrition uh I, I think i had a good grasp of eating lots of eating lots of calories and eating lots of protein uh, but i didn't understand micronutrition i didn't understand quality versus quantity uh those those are concepts that you know didn't you know it, it, whether whether they weren't presented to me or they didn't resonate with me at that time uh, they weren't, they weren't anyway, they weren't something I was doing, but as a coach very early on in my coaching career, not, not my athletic career, but you know, when that subsequent to my athletic career, my coaching career, I, I began uh, to do a lot of work and spend a lot of time with Paul check, which, you know, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, maybe I'd heard the word organic, uh, but I, it wasn't something I understood, but just, you know, uh, the quality of my nutrition, uh, the importance of, of micronutrients, not just macronutrients. That was stuff that I actually did embrace very early on. And probably I would say, to be honest, uh, I, was, I was probably uh, a little bit more militant about it at that time. You know, I think, I, yeah. you know, if I do 25 years ago, I knew exactly what and how and when and why everybody needed to eat. I knew exactly how many grams of this or that they needed. Uh, you know, I, I would never, you know, I would never have certain foods in my house. I would never consume certain foods. I would, I would think less of others who did. I think I, I've really learned to, uh, you know, time and life uh, has a way of, uh, you know, giving you granting you a little bit of wisdom uh, when you see lots of different examples and you know, this Mark, that, you know, when you deal with athletes at the, at the highest level of sport, a lot of these things that you've been taught that you must do, or you may not do, you find out that they, they do or don't do those things. And, a lot of these rules that you assumed were, you know, were hard and fast or not. So, I think I've, I've very I've mellowed on my approach. But in, uh, in long-winded answer to your question, I think very very early on, uh, largely to the, from the influence of Paul Czech, I, I was I was wise to the importance of that for my athletes.
1: That's interesting because that's a similar arc that I think a lot of us go through, which is that initial enthusiasm and nutrition and everything's all the t's are crossed and the i's are dotted, and it's really, you know. Granular, and then as we go, like you said, over the years working with athletes, life in general, start to realize we got to play the long game, and and nudging things in the right direction actually has some powerful, powerful wins. And if we flip to your the coaching side and and talk about that sort of early career, you know, what are some of the things that maybe looking back on, you think about, you know, doing differently, or obviously environment and time has an impact on all that. But when you look back at so. coaching yourself back then or coaching athletes back then, what are some of the things that you might, uh, you know, rethink or re-examine how you approached it?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, in the, in the same vein as my last response, I think that I, you know, I, I knew exactly what everybody needed to do 25 years ago. Now, I, I don't think, I'm not sure if I know what anybody needs to do, or certainly I don't know what, I don't know what the hell I'm doing half the time. Uh, but I think early on, uh, and I, I think that a lot of it was influenced by my experience that I, I had done these things, I had a certain level of success, at least, you know, maybe maybe not necessarily on the, you know, the field of sport, but uh, I had a certain level of success training for my sport. I could, I could lift heavy weights and jump high and run fast. So I assumed that what I was doing was the right way to do things uh, for lots of people, uh, including lots of people that were nothing like me. And I, I had to learn the hard way that that's not, you know, that's not the way it is. So I think that uh, having an understanding that there are many roads that lead to Rome and, and there's many different ways to train uh, that all can be valid at, at at different times for different people for different reasons and, uh, and then learning how to apply different programs and, cl- and different concepts and different exercises, including ones that I don't personally like, including ones that, you know, I, I maybe don't entirely understand uh but but i i you know i can't deny the fact that they seem to be working even if they are opposed to you know to you know or in opposition of, of ideas or philosophies that i previously held that i found that hey you know what for whatever reason I, I was of the belief that this training modality this exercise this type of program isn't isn't good it doesn't work it's not the right thing to do but you can't argue with the fact that athlete X over there is having great results doing it. So maybe I need to, to examine why it seems to be working for that person. And is it something that I could apply to somebody else like them?
1: Yeah. It's interesting how that crosses over again, nutrition, training, that just sort of mindset and philosophy of, of being able to ask ourselves that question. Cause it's the same in nutrition of certain strategies. We have a, just a bias against or for, we tend to just gravitate to those sides of things and, you know, with that, looking at the various athletes that are coming with you, and and that frame of reference of saying, well, there's lots of different bodies, there's lots of different movement histories, injury histories. How do you start to sort of categorize or bucket, or, or what's that process, that screening process that you start to go through and to be able to figure out, hey, what's what might be the best general trends yeah. or, or areas to go?
0: I think now, like in my in my current business now, we, we've got a pretty robust uh buffet of testing options we've got you know from the very very rudimentary very basic uh you know fms type of assessments to something that's a little bit more uh a little, a little bit more advanced but still subjective with an orthopedic uh, you know you know manual test, your thomas test your Obers test all that sort of good stuff yeah uh, way up to we we have you know two different uh, force plate systems we've got force stacks and force frames and boards and And the list goes on and on and on. Uh, We use all those things. But I I think a a bigger part of what we do is drawing on that 25 years of experience where I can say, hey, you know what? This kid, Mark, reminds me of Joe Blow back in, you know, 2000. They had a very similar profile. They had a very similar pattern that I'm seeing. And I I remember not having success with a conventional approach with that guy. Maybe I can maybe I can kind of cut to the chase and, and assume that there might be something that I could draw on from that. So I think that all all of the objective measures are obviously very important because I, I want to self scrutinize and I want to make sure that I'm doing a good job. One thing we talk about: every everybody loves their personal trainer. You you, yeah. you almost have to go out of your way to do like if you if you're a halfway normal decent person, if you know a couple of jokes or a good story, and you don't yeah. hurt you probably, your clients should really like you, right? But mm. just are our, our athletes just liking us or just liking our gym or just liking to train here. That's not good enough for me. I want to make sure that objectively, I hope, I hope you like us, but more importantly, I want to make sure we're doing our job we're actually making you faster, stronger, whatever, you know, whatever it is that you were looking for.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting, uh, especially when you talk about just that idea of we've got to be able to create a bit of connection, but that comes with things and then we've got to be able to go a level above um, in terms of providing that. And when you talk about, you know, now we see a lot of, you know, master's degrees in, in, in sport and exercise. And so, you know, Excel sheets, data, and then we talk about the art of coaching the kind of feel and the, the 20, 30 years of saying, I've seen this pattern or an athlete like x, how do we start to marry those things up in the sense of we're kind of really going granular on the one side and maybe some of those coaches, perhaps a younger generation lacking some of the same coaching ability or wisdom. Is that?
0: Yeah, I think, I think the problem that I've seen is that people decide that they are all about one or they are all about the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a quote that I read recently, and I'm, I'm going to misquote it, but it was Julian Brieswell of the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning who said that if we changed the word analytics to information, would anybody be opposed to it? Would anybody say, I don't believe <laughs> I don't believe in information? Yeah. Use we don't use information in this team. That's not what we do. So I think that the to me, the role of sports science or the sports scientists is to support the the coaching staff, whether that's the actual technical, tactical sport coaches or the strength and conditioning coaches, but I think really what it should be is instead of the sports scientist or the stats guy or the analytics person, instead of them telling the coach these are the players that are good, I think it should be uh, the coach saying, "Hey, these players are good. Why are they good? What is the common denominator? Are there are there are there correlations in, and are there causations? Or can we can we can we decide that any of these things? And that carries over into the weight room as well, where I, you know we we do that even within our business privately, where I will say. I don't want to assume that I'm doing a great job. I want to assume that I'm not doing a great job. I want to make I want to make sure that every week I'm scrutinizing our results and saying, "Okay, are we doing a great job? If we are, cool. Why do we think? Why is that? What is it that we're great? And if we're not doing a great job, why is that?" Uh, and and I think that 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 role of sports science is critical, and the role of of analytics and and statistical measures in in the world of strength and conditioning is. Super valuable, uh, and you. Should, but again, it's not. I don't believe that that should be driving the decision making process. I think that that should be used to support the you know the keen coach's eye, the coach's gut feel, the the wisdom of, uh, of of the savvy coach. You could say, I get a sense that my team is underperforming, or I get a sense that this athlete is peaking too soon, or they're not peaking soon enough, or whatever why why is that like what what can we determine is there is it their aerobic system is it their anaerobic system is it is it some hormonal issue that needs to be addressed uh, that that to me is the magic that it's not one system or the other you, it's not about being a a sports science guy versus an old school guy or being a or not i think i think it's making sure you're using all of those pieces of information
1: In this next clip, you're gonna hear from Kate Callaway, Director of Performance Nutrition for the Carolina Panthers, talking about practical concepts for meeting the nutrition needs of athletes. Kate's gonna share with you some of the lessons learned in the trenches, boots on the ground of working with collegiate and professional athletes and some of those hurdles and roadblocks that we all face along
2: the way.
3: To share some common barriers that I've run into with work In working with athletes, um, and I'm sure you all can relate to, to many extent or to much extent, um, are listed here. Then we'll go through, we'll do a few examples and work through some of them. Uh, nutrition education is, um, a, I don't want to say it's the most common barrier that I run into, at least at the, the NFL level. I've been able to, to see the difference in college athletes. i tend to tended to see a lot more um, barrier of education in the NFL, there are a lot of athletes who, who have gained more nutrition education. Um, but there are still plenty, especially the younger athletes coming in, um, needing, needing some education on how, like, they just don't know a lot about nutrition. Um, self-awareness is huge as well. There are, as, as we all know, you know, for we're humans working on being humans, we have levels of awareness of certain things, um, and nutrition. I think it's, a lot to do with our society and our culture around food. Um, our awareness of food is sometimes maybe in the wrong places. Sometimes our, like our physical awareness is, um, is off. And I see this a lot in, in athletes. Um, they're so honed in on many of their physical cues and some of them are really sharp with their hunger and fullness and pace of eating and so forth and so on. But, um, some are very very focused on other physical cues and and are so used to and programmed to just eating a certain way that they don't often even check in with themselves to try to identify hunger, fullness, the amount of food they're eating compared to what they need. So that level of awareness is really important and something that I try to work on with athletes as well. Improper application of, of many nutrition principles is something I see a lot. Um, as we all know, there are so many great nutrition practices out there that athletes can use. Um, I see a lot of them using them at the wrong times or maybe in the wrong situations and so forth. So we'll talk through that immediate gratification. I think you all can relate to this Uh, many clients, whether you work directly with athletes or not, we all want what we want and we want it now. And and I can attest to that for myself too. Um, But working on patience and, and looking for that more delayed gratification as relates to nutrition is often um, something I'm working with athletes on as well. So we'll, we'll talk through that. Talent's a big one. If you, if you work with um, with athletes at all, I mean, most athletes have have a level of talent that have gotten them to where they are, whether it's high school, college, professional sport. Um, And because of that, a lot of athletes have not had to really care much about their nutrition or Luckily, if they're lucky enough to not have um, dealt with an injury, you know they just don't think about some of the things that influence their health and their well-being, because talent has always trumped any any need for that. Um, and then, as you see athletes increase their level of participation or their level of sport, um, that you know they get a little more uh, their talent. I, for lack of a better way to put it, gets um, watered down a little bit. There, you know, you get to college, you're not as good as you were in high school. You get to the NFL. You're not as good as you were in college for a lot of people. Um, so working through that and helping them figure that out is important. And then resources um, in the NFL. Most of our athletes do have a lot of resources um, in terms of financial resources, time is not always a strong resource they have. Or one thing I've run into is maybe they have resources of time and money, personal chefs, um, people that want to help them and, and work for free for them to put, you know, their name out there. Um, they have resources at their fingertips, but they don't really know how to prioritize them or, or allocate them. If they have a nutrition goal to reach, that's often something. Um, so here are some some paths, I'll call them that I, that I typically use for these barriers, um, for education, obviously, you know, you have to teach athletes things, individualize, as I mentioned before, is really important to individualize what you're teaching athletes. Um, I do catch myself at times, uh, assuming that athletes will know X, Y, or Z, or they won't know this and vice versa, or, you know, many a different myriad of of combinations of what they know and don't know. And when I talk to them, I find, okay, you know, maybe they don't actually know X, Y, or Z. They don't know what a carbohydrate is after, you know, I think they came from a program with a dietitian at college, but maybe they weren't in the position to need to utilize it and so forth. So I've learned not to assume what athletes know and don't know. And then individualizing, like I said, extremely important. Um, for self-awareness, I would love if anybody wants to talk about this on, on the side, I don't have a lot of, um, examples integrated in this self-awareness part today. Um, I love, this is a topic that I have huge passion about and think that, um, we could dedicate a lot more time to. So if you're interested in talking more about it, please let me know, contact me, um, Mindfulness practice and intuitive eating, I use a lot personally in, in my practice with athletes. Um, some athletes buy into it, some don't. But I think more and more, as the culture of like um, psychological health and well-being improves, we I see more athletes who are understanding how mindfulness affects their eating and learning hunger and fullness patterns and so forth and so on, like how that affects their um, their. Experience in eating and nutrition. Improper application. I have an asterisk here by the the path that we're going to practice through uh, because it's so common. I see so commonly athletes utilizing certain diets or nutrition information just in the wrong way. Um, we'll we'll talk through this, but education plays a role in this and contextualizing, helping athletes understand, you know, what they're what they think they're doing and what they're actually doing in the context of their life and their sport and their position, um, how, whatever it is that they think they want to do, you know, needs to, to work in context with what their act, their actual needs are, um, immediate gratification effect. We'll talk through an example here. Um, small, honest goals. I call it being honest with people, athletes being honest with themselves about what they can achieve. They're used to doing big things, you know, overcoming big, you know, hurdles to use, to use a metaphor, um, and, you know, achieving big things. And so sometimes breaking things down into small, small components or small goals doesn't really feel like a big enough for them. um, But it is a a process in, in reaching the bigger goal, right? So, and being honest about what works and what doesn't. And I, I find, you know, sometimes athletes, will kind of, yes, they'll, they'll, you, you work with them. They say yes to everything. And, and it's like, okay, do you think you could, for example, do you think you could, um, eat a little more at lunch? Yeah. And then it's like, well, when they really think about it, they're actually really full at lunch. They struggle at lunch for, cause it's right after practice, if that's the schedule. So just being honest with themselves and, and honest with me and you all as the practitioner, like I always try to tell athletes, we can work around whatever, almost whatever comes up. Like if it, we don't have to add the calories at lunch, we can add them as a snack later or at dinner, but you just have to have that honest line of communication um, and working with your athletes, the teamwork between your you and them um, to help them understand that things are going to take time. And I think time is one of the the biggest areas that athletes need to be honest with themselves, reaching their goal is going to take time. Um, so we, I think as practitioners need to help them understand timelines and coaches too. I run into this with coaches who might come to me. It's for me, it's usually when there's a weight goal involved, well, or an injury recovery. I know um, our sports medicine and athletic training is more involved with the injury recovery processes. But like, if you have a coach that comes to you and says, you know, this, this, this guy needs to gain 10 pounds or lose 10 pounds by the time training camp starts and you've got six weeks till training camp. It's like, yeah, maybe that's possible. But like, if you've already, like I have an athlete right now I'm working with, I've already worked with them quite a bit. I know his, his usual pattern. And I know that it's not likely he's going to lose 10 pounds by training camp, just based on what he usually does. And so being honest with the coach about, you know, I'm not saying, you know, you, you have to carefully, um, articulate things, but you know, letting them know, because you don't want to put yourself in a position that, you know, says we're going to do this and then it doesn't end up happening. And, um, and being honest with, with coaches too, about how athletes, you know, without oversharing, you know, clinical or personal information on behalf of the athlete, letting coaches know, or other practitioners who are involved know, um, maybe where the athlete struggles that could get in the way of goals. Um, so all working together and being on the same page is important. Um, one one thing that we use or, or I've learned especially recently to use when athletes um, kind of haven't had to see past their talent and and reach for more things to make them better an example nutrition um, we'll talk to them about longevity and then like maybe find a role model in the in the building like who is it that you look at you got like a first or second year um running back. And, and that's a, that's a position we know that gets a lot of wear and tear and they get banged up and, and they want to make it for more than two years in the league. It's like, all right, look around, even if it's not in the building, if it's somebody else in the league, but start in the building, because you get those examples up close, who is it in your position group that if you, you know, if you could be like them and play as long as them, like, who is it? And, and what do they do to in their day to make, make themselves better and to to have the longevity
1: Terrific insights there from Kate Calloway. In this next clip, you're going to hear from Will Greenberg, assistant strength coach for the Buffalo Bills for the Masters in Nutrition. He's going to talk about the five things that
2: he's changed his mind about. So in this clip, you'll hear about a couple of those items. So the first one that I want to hit, really hit hard with is what I used to think is that people care. And I left it intentionally vague. I... I understand that people care and I'm talking generally about the athletes or the people that I work with, but it's not that they, it's not that they don't care. It's just that my expectations were that they were as passionate as I was about the things that go into performance. So I hope you can tell that I am passionate about nutrition. I'm passionate about exercise. I'm passionate about the components that make athletes successful or get as close to peak performance as possible. But my expectation was misaligned that the athlete would care just as much about that because there's a lot of things that that athlete has to care about. Just one of them happens to be nutrition and performance or nutrition and exercise or anything that goes into improving performance. But there's also a human being in there. What I realized was that human beings are not persuaded by information. You're not going to persuade someone to change their mind, especially in a polarized world like this that we live in. You're not going to change people's minds just based off fact and information. I've tried time and time and time and time again, and I've always hit a brick wall. The difference is, and the thing that I think now is that the more I care about people, the more I authentically have a relationship with them, the more I become part of their tribe the more that they rely on the emotion of, I can trust this person, the more I can get done with them. So what I used to think was that people care just as much as I did. What I think now is that I need to spend the time and invest my time into caring about people. And it's not the old adage, oh, they don't, they don't uh, care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's not that it's creating authentic relationships with people. It's becoming part of not just coming part of the tribe, but understanding how they view the world because people make decisions or change behaviors off emotion, not fact in the majority of the time. And the more I recognize that, the less I actually talk to my athletes about nutrition, about exercise, about the things, the components of performance, the more I scaled that back. And the more time I spent authentically learning about that person's family or their friends or their children or things that they're interested in the world, the more the gates open and those players came to me and trust. Is such a critical component, especially in professional football, along with a lot of different places. But the trust that you can have with that athlete really matters. All right, last one here. Last one. What I used to think is that information is all you need. I used to try to accumulate as much information as I could all the time. I'd dive into the research. I'd read as much as I could. I'd watch um, as many of these seminars as I could. I'd go visit people and think, Well, I have the information and going back, I used to think that there was always right and wrong. Also, information is all you need. And you, and I hope you're seeing how this is tying in because I used to think that if I had information, I could tell the athlete exactly what to do, wipe my hands. I'm good at what I do, but I kept hitting brick walls where even if I had the information and I told them and I set it up in a meal plan and I set it up exactly how it needed to be minute by minute, that, that athlete set up for success. But time and time again, it just didn't work that way. The the world was too complex. There's too many things. There's too much fluctuation in life for that to happen. So what I think now is that information is nothing without action. And that information, while important, if you're not lowering the friction that it takes to create action, you're just leaving it up to chance. So a lot of times it's an uphill battle with players because, again, they might not care as much as you do, or life gets in the way for them, or they don't trust you enough to do that, or they think something different, or their information is, is coming from a different source. All of these things are the realities of trying to create positive change within our athletes. But that information without action is, is useless. So what I now do in my approach is create action plans. I find out what the main blocker is for that person. And I do that through getting to know them, getting to know them as a human being, getting to understand them, getting them to trust me. The one thing I try not to do is just, oh, they need to be educated about it. Because education, I can tell you anecdotally, but I can tell you time and time again, it is not the solution. And if it was education, Information is free out online, and I could give all of our play, every player that ever comes across uh, my path, the information, and I would no longer have a job. It would be easy to do that because information is not what makes change. Action is what makes change, and action requires a relationship with that person and you to take one step further or two steps further than what you usually would do. And I hope you're seeing, and, I'm, and, and this graphic right here is it's, this is not the, the Greenberg framework in any way. It's just this is the way it works in my mind. As always talked about, was caring about people, investing in the human being, being intentional with them, setting it up so that they know what to maximize and what is satisfactory, teaching them to master the basics, show them the compounding interest of the boring. And this is where you're teaching them to fish, you're teaching them all the things that are going to keep them. Keep them going in the fluctuations of life, which is the complexity, the context that matters, helping them navigate the complexities of, of life. And then lastly, is doing more than is required of you, going above and beyond with that action step, going, reducing the friction, not just pushing the car by. So I, in my head, there's a, there's a car that I'm trying to push, and that athlete is either help me a little bit, help me a lot, but either way, it's an uphill battle. Well, reducing the friction, I'm going to take that, and I'm going to turn that car to where it's flat ground. Where now, we can put if we push just as hard, we're gonna accelerate super hard. And as those wheels start turning and the wheels start picking up m- momentum, it's a lot easier to push, but we need that momentum first. So I'm going to change the friction by setting their environment up in order for, them, for it to be easier and then start with small little wins and go with them along the way until they can push the call on their own. And if you complete the cycle here, what you're looking at is, When you do that for someone, you're investing in that person and you care about them. They're going to trust you more. And you just continue that cycle, continue that cycle until now, all of a sudden you as a practitioner, your thing that needs to be maximized changes because those players are satisfactory in what they can do. And when they're, you don't need to maximize all your time or or be intentional all your time with that person that needed to change the amount of friction and what they needed to do. And they're self-sufficient because you showed them what they needed, you helped them master the basics, you helped them learn to fish. Now you can set your sights on someone else and your time is more intentional. And to me, this is the way that I'm, I see everything uh, constantly. I, I've changed my mind that this is, over the last five years, That this is the way that I approach all the athletes that I work with. And to be honest with you, it's also the way that I approach my friends and my family and my daughter and the people that I spend time with. Because I think all of these principles I didn't even have to talk about nutrition while we had this this, uh, summit here. All these things are about life, about the human being. And I think the more I invest in the human being starting there, the more I get out of people.
1: Great insights there from Will. Really about how our perspectives change over time with, with experience. A really important thing to consider and to reflect on. In this next clip, you're going to hear from Dr. Matt Frakes. Of LSU, and how we marry up the objective data we're getting and the subjective data with athletes—you know what our eyes and our ears are telling us when we work one-to-one with athletes. We've been talking throughout this conference about you know complex environments and solving problems in complex environments. And this isn't endurance sport. This isn't cycling. You know, we don't know exactly how fast the individual has to go. We can't put them on an erg bike and calculate exactly the watts we need and know exactly the energy expenditure. There's a lot of unknowns. Um, And you've got a lot of athletes. And so we're relying on a lot of subjective information. Yep. But in what ways are we collecting, or do you collect, some of that objective information with your athletes to help inform some of those decisions?
4: Man, absolutely. And and we're still working towards adding more because that's, like you said, the biggest issue is that within American football alone, as far as informa- the information and the data that is shown is not really as far as a lot that shows of, of substance and of value. So objectively, um, things that we have been integrating and changing, I've only been here since December 7th. So um, at this current moment, we, we started with changing, okay, our lab panels is one thing during certain uh, situations as far as uh, whether it's injury or whether it's just even annual, quarterly measurements. Um, We're using those lab panels to help as far as guide and engage how we integrate our interventions from a nutrition and supplementation standpoint. Uh, That's one component. Another component is as far as uh, how we're working with our our manager of applied sports science with Scott and looking at as far as from the catapult data that they're utilizing as well uh, managing as far as how they're managing their stress load and we my office is right next to there so we communicate all the time on what players is uh reaching what uh, values and seeing as far as what i need to communicate with them on on a daily basis especially as i'm uh, looking at as far as on those mill checks if you will uh, mm-hmm. To make sure that we're guiding towards the right type of from what I think is best theoretically through to the, given that certain circumstance of their day, and then also the days prior from training from academics, um, and then also now with the Oura ring as well, looking as far as their readiness scores and looking at their sleep, um, their sleep values as well. So that, yeah. that's, that's another component that we're utilizing right now. Uh, that's, that's gonna be very beneficial and uh th- th- that's if they wear them and that's if they do it right and do it consistently
1: so <laughs> absolutely Compl- <laughs> so, compliance we can get to that one um, i know <laughs> matt nickel was talking a lot about sometimes we create these kind of false dichotomies of yeah. are you are you a data guy or are you sort of art of coaching and talking about how you know using data to inform practice in snc and nutrition but also the art of coaching of having done something for 15 20 years and saying hey this guy reminds me of somebody else that. I used to coach that had, you know, similar qualities that didn't quite fit into the buckets that I would normally use. And so when we talk about integrating and utilizing subjective and objective and bringing those together to Mm -hmm. perform practice, where do you start?
4: So, man, you, you, and you have to find out as far as your starting point with your team and your culture of your team too, and figure out when you first, when you're there, what are, and if you've been there, uh, what are the prior basically complications that that team has had, um, whether that be injury or whether that be shortcomings as far as um, while they're in competition, um, whether that be as far as uh, fatigue or rather that be as far as uh, not properly feeling if you're there with that individual, with those athletes throughout the entire day, seeing their practices and those standpoints um, and just seeing as far as starting from there, assessing the situation, starting from there, where can you make the biggest impact That. So, for me, as always, as far as finding out, uh, getting the feel for the environment, um, asking those simple questions and everything, observing, first and foremost, as far as their uh, situations, getting them in those, in those arenas where they are um, their most vulnerable state, so when they're most relaxed. Rather that be as far as an athletic training or rather that be as far as uh, um, an ice tub, or rather that be as far as in those meal settings as well. Those are always the most vulnerable things for us.
1: I was going to say, if we if we pin it there for a minute, that's a really important point, isn't it? Defining yeah. the the place where the athletes are kind of letting their guard down a little bit because it's easy to get the answers of "I'm great, everything's fine, yes, I'm doing that," versus kind of letting that guard down a little bit and actually getting some good feedback from what you're actually the athletes how they're feeling or what they're actually doing, right?
4: Yeah, exactly. And man, you and you and you have to. For me, I, I try not to get the simple. It's fine. I'm good. And let that be the end of the conversation because it's always something that's going on with them and you have to be adaptable to how your athletes are and kind of, and kind of guide as far as what, like who you are as a coach in order to even get how you want your data, your uh, practical application, as far as how you want to involve and integrate your interventions, all that stuff in order to do so, they got to be able to trust you. So, but you're not going, they're not going to be able to trust you if, if you just let them continue to kind of give you the simple short and sweet answers and you guys don't ever have a legit conversation about anything
1: yeah and how, do, and how does that work in practice let's say an athlete is giving you the short answers or on the field the coach is seeing them perform and it's like oh that doesn't look the same as it normally does is that then a moment to kind of pause and circle back to some of that objective data to see what they're doing in the weight room or to see what some of their outputs are to see if those things match up or how do you What's the process there for you guys?
4: So, for us, so, and it's been great because, again, working with with Scott here uh, for our manager of Applied Sports Science, and then uh, looking as far as on our wellness questionnaires that they have to fill out what's their fatigue levels, their stress levels, how do they sleep, how many meals they ate, uh, what have you, and letting that be a guide of conversation of what they filled out. And then sometimes, and then you have to also be present because even what they filled out in those wellness questionnaires, sometimes they may just even complete it because they just want to get it done and over with, especially if it's something that you're holding them accountable for, um, that they need to get those things done. Um, And it's something that the entire environment and the coaching staff also holds those athletes accountable for. And if they don't complete those, then obviously then they get the repercussions as far as whether it be disciplinary or whether it be conversation, whatever it may be. Um, So that's the thing there that that has to always lead into basically, okay, those objective measurements, then it goes into – how are they performing in the weight room, how are they performing out there, doing team runs, the conditioning sessions, how are they performing as far as doing practice? Uh, because all that leads into those conversations and supports the evidence on what you need to do to apply how you need to go about what you need to improve on your hydration, which you need to improve on as far as supplementation, which you need to improve on as far as um, acute meal settings, and then coach them on what they need to do as far as away from you, um, when it comes into those meals away from you, because you can only control so much In that environment, they're only only with you between two to four hours out of that day. Obviously within camp time, they're with you for more in the collegiate setting, more hours in a day. And if you're someone that values that being hands-on, then you're there and you're present. So you're able to see a lot more. As tiring as it is, you're able to see a lot more and actually feel a lot more because also they're more vulnerable because they can actually see that you're in the trenches with them and and that you are, to them it means a lot, at least for this team here, Mm -hmm. it means a lot to them just even seeing someone consistently all the time no matter what so that's been a part of that's been a plus that's been adding to how i can utilize that subjective measurements and to now from all the data i'm collecting from the lab panels from all the data that they're collecting as far as from their uh, performance outcomes and then also from what the catapult is showing how i can guide my conversations to them and coach them up
1: amazing and you know before we jump into some of that data collection if we if we pause on the hydration side of things between kind of simple heuristics to the athlete of maybe the color of their urine or things like that to some of the actual testing that you might do you know how does that work its way out in the sense of are you testing at certain times and also providing heuristics to guys is it how do you start to then flag certain individuals that hey these are the people we need to watch out for can you walk us through that
4: yeah for sure so and i'm playing with it right now to try to figure out okay what's the best way to do so um, so when I first got here, we actually tried to u- utilize as far as working with a sweat patch with, um, another company that's been as far as heavily involved with trying to see the sodium concentration and also the other, um, whatever we tell them that we want to see within mm-hmm. these values as well in their sweat rate. So, and then how much fluid that can be collecting that sweat rate at a, uh, particularly given the time. So that's one way that we tried to see as far as with a couple of handful of guys um, from those that have history of basically cramping or history of sickle cell trait or um, history of just when you look at them, they're just a heavy sweater. That's why we have our mm. guys wear those gray shirts so we can monitor and see who nice. is on, and point those out and list those things out and guide those conversations in the latter. Um, so from that standpoint, it's more so of, that's been one way right now, the one that's been more concrete because of one I have 110 players. Um, and then also it's more of a family that has to, that has to be diligent about how do we get this information. So um, not just using as far as those uh, your BMP or CMP, but also seeing as far as uh, their average weekly weights for us. Mm-hmm. So we want to see their way in way outs. And then as far as from a week span, what is the average that they're being within that timeframe? Yeah. Because also that can, I, I like to look more of an average weekly rather than just a particular number because also one, it, it helps the conversation with, The staff and the coaching staff of being responsible with how those players need to wait and respecting their fluctuations that they're going to have day to day in a week-to-week basis
1: our last clip from this performance nutrition summit will be from prateek patel former strength coach and performance nutrition lead for the new york giants again sharing his insights of his journey through working in elite collegiate sport making the jump to the nfl And some of those lessons learned along the way. My first question for you is around, you know, when you started out in college sport, you know, when you first made that leap, what was the, what were some of the biggest challenges for you when, when you got that role, that first role?
5: Yeah, yeah. I think the biggest thing is, and it's very similar to strength and conditioning. You go through your, your curriculum in undergrad and grad school, and you don't actually finish, and get a degree in strength and conditioning or sports dietetics. I mean, it sets the stage and foundation for learning the principles and the subject matter, but you actually have to get thrown into the environments to be able to implement it. And sport is so chaotic and every environment is so very different, even from college to college, from pro team to pro team. You're, nothing's really going to prepare you for that until you're actually in it. Even if you're an intern, you're not the ones making the actual decisions where it's kind of your ass is on the line. And until you actually get a chance to do that and experience what it's like and know, you know okay, this is my thought process, this is how I reacted, this was the result, and this is how I, you know, challenge that and try to iterate and get better. Uh, that was the biggest thing is just that adjustment piece, because now it's taking all this knowledge that you've accumulated for, you know, four to, it was, for me, it was seven or eight years I was in school, you know, after my master's, yep. getting a chance to work in Michigan State. That was my first, you know, real full-time gig. And that environment hardened me very quickly because I got thrown in the fire and experienced things that I never even thought I would and I'm glad for it, but at the same time, that was, you know, over 10 years ago, and things have changed quite a bit, so a lot of the implementation of strategies, you know, how well nutrition is received has changed a lot, Um, so I think for me, it was just, you know, I was very fixed-minded early in my career, and, you know, I've admitted that quite a bit, just, you know, with a lot of my postings and things that I've shared, and I think the curriculum and the way that we're taught kind of closes off any creative thinking or critical thinking, not only just in dietetics and nutrition, but also in exercise physiology too, where this is the only way you need to train, or this is the way that every athlete needs to eat instead of being very open about what is the situation? How do I assess this from A to Z or using a very wide lens? That's a great
1: point. And so when you've got thrown into that and you start realizing, you know, these, the nuances and the complexity of of that kind of problem. You know, what are some of the things that you started leaning on Then, or it might not even have been consciously at that point of just the way that you could navigate then of, um Not only, you know, not just upskilling on the nutrition or exercise front, which you already had experience in, but some of these other, you know, gray areas around, whether it's communicating with, with players or staff or how you get your point across to them. Right.
5: Yeah. I think early on, I had to really lean on the strength and conditioning staff that I was working really closely with because they had a you know, significant amount of buy-in. So this was Coach D'Antonio's staff at Michigan State. Um, he retired last year, and Ken Manny was a head strength coach, and that, that staff had been there for a very long time. And they knew the importance of nutrition, which was an easy in for me instead of me trying to prove it to them to be able to get time with the team. Like, they were already sold, which is really important. And they had a lot of experience and a lot of time with the players. And the players, obviously, when you, you think of that that coaching-player relationship, especially at the collegiate level, there's already that inherent trust that's built in, even if, say, the methods aren't as effective because, you know, you have wide varying effectiveness levels of practitioners and coaches. So I had to leverage my relationship with them to be able to get more face time and get in with the team to learn more about what they saw, you know, because they'd been in that program for a very long time, and I'm just this new person coming in trying to, you know, provide everything I can under the sun nutrition wise, in terms of services and education, thinking that it's the greatest thing in the world. And yeah, it's important, but at the end of the day, it's a very small piece of what these athletes are going to go through. And I needed to learn that and see that from their perspectives. And they kind of gave me a push in certain directions to like, Hey, uh, this is my advice when you're approaching this person, or, Hey, this is a good time frame to get time with the team or make sure you go see them when the team is together in the afternoon here, because there wasn't anything put in place to guide that. So I was pretty much on my own trying to figure that out and navigating it. So there were a lot of things that didn't work, but there were a lot of things that helped me out to gain that trust and buy-in with the team. And it also rolled over and spilled over to the medical staff. And then since I was more of a face that the coaches were familiar with, and that started bridging that gap with the actual coaching staff, which was a great coaching staff. I still actually talked to a few of them to this day. So that was something that I needed to do because understanding that I felt nutrition was super important, but being realistic and seeing it and experiencing it and knowing that, yeah, I'm the lowest man on the totem pole. And I need to figure out how do I start climbing these rungs based on who's a big key stakeholder within this program. And with it, it was, it was Coach Manny and then Sally, the head athletic trainer. So doing whatever I can to build up those relationships so they would feel that they were comfortable with me sending players my way. Because back then, you know, there was no fueling stations, you know, just a training table meal. That was it. Very meager snacks that were allowed to these players that are expending a tremendous amount of energy. So my effectiveness was based on getting the players to do what they, you know, they should have been doing regularly and consistently and having that voice and that sounding board and that support from the medical staff and the strength and conditioning staff. If I didn't have that, I would have been shit out of luck.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a great, uh, you know, it's a great strategy, isn't it? To be able to find the key people that are got the influence in the room that you can then with being able to set that one relationship and building the confidence of that one person, all of a sudden they build the trust in you. And now that's going to be able to basically percolate through the entire room to a certain level. I mean, I appreciate back then, you know, it was, it was challenging and it's amazing how grabbing people at the right time of day it sounds like such a funny thing, but it's also key of like, when, an athlete or a coach has the bandwidth to take on what you're trying to deliver to them versus just, you know, unloading everything you have whenever you see them. But that, that timing does become really important. Um, and so, and we're gonna throw this out to everyone here in, in a minute. But curious then, like when you make the jump to the NFL, what are some of the what are the biggest things that stand out and the difference then between working in the NCAA at a really you know big program like Michigan State and making your way to the New York Giants.
5: Yeah. It, you know, you really start learning more about the business side of the NFL, how things are very much guided by the CBA and, you know, there's no tiptoeing around it and everybody in the building is, is aware of it. So when you're not actually in that specific environment and you understand the nuances, like, Hey, you know, during the off season training, when the team gets together, we're in phase one and there's phase two, and then there's phase three OTAs phase one, when you look at the schedule, everything is voluntary. So meal times are voluntary lifts are two hours lifts and conditionings, two hours, phase one, phase two, it's still two hours, but they get field time. They have a little bit of meeting time. And then the players are out the door once like noon hits. And if a coach is a player's coach, you know, you can go four days a week. Some will go four days in a row and give them a three day weekend. Okay. So they have that extra time off, even though if that team hadn't made the playoffs, they had four months of a three day weekend before that. So these players, you know, um, unless they're a high profile player, they're gonna hold out and not not gonna show up until mandatory training camp or mini camp, you know, they they don't wanna be in the building unless it's somebody that's proving themselves that's trying to make the roster. And then they know that they have to show face and show the coaching staff, like, hey, I know exactly what I'm doing. I deserve to be on this roster. So understanding that business side and knowing that these players get cut on a dime. So it's the GM's responsibility to make sure that roster is competitive. And they're, he's giving the coaches players that can execute the plan. So from 2017 to my last year with the team in 2020, there were only three players left on the roster. I think I think that's true. Which that's a significant amount of turnover because you start with about 90 in the offseason until the preseason. And when the last preseason game finishes, you know the roster gets cut down to. I know I know they changed it because of COVID last year, and then the new CBA. So it could be 53 or 57 plus X number of players on the practice squad. 10 to 13 which isn't very much so you lose half that roster so you build up a significant amount of time doing as much as you can building trust with these guys because they're at all different stages of their career some are 20 21 year old rookies some are 38 year old eli manning so you know there's varying levels of what they're going to want to do and how much time that they actually want to spend in the building and listen to you because they might have their own support staff on the outside which some of the higher higher money guys do you know they've got a chef stretch guy acupuncturist their own like personal holistic coach or you know their own performance manager so to speak
1: every title so under the trying, sun i'm sure you've seen
5: yeah yeah so you're trying to educate them on what's going on in the time understanding like we know what the demands are of training but then they have th- this other stuff that they're doing outside and you have no idea about so that was one of the biggest challenges is understanding the players are smart. They're they're definitely more apt to listening to what you have to say because their job depends on it. I mean, it's it's the it's the acuteness of the sport. If yeah. they're not healthy, ready to go, they're gonna get cut and that roster spot's gonna get filled. If somebody's better who got cut from another team, then the GM's gonna bring them in and replace, you know, that player if they were third or fourth on the depth chart. Yeah. And you know, that's just that's the GM's job. So that was that was really tough for us to not only develop that buy-in really quickly, but to actually be effective. So it's it's not only the IQ and the EQ and the SQ, but it all gets compounded with your ability to communicate and be the person that they actually want to talk to. You know, because there's this, there's a lot of people in the building that are pulling them in twenty different ways. You know, medical, sports science, performance, nutrition, their coaching, the coaching staff, PR, community service. You know, they have their own brands. They want to be on their phone all the time. They're worried about their family and money. So it's like, how do I get this nugget of information, like you said, at the right time to where they're going to want to listen that could potentially over time be very valuable? And because they're not doing it or they're doing certain things that are holding them back, I want to make them aware of it. So that was definitely the hardest part for me. Yeah,
1: it's funny because I can appreciate uh, even with the national team of Canada basketball, we get guys that come in and it's a short training camp and then we've got to implement something and there might be some strategy or something you think is really effective, but it might be a, a player that hasn't played and all of a sudden you're trying to build this buy-in um, to communicate the point that, hey, this is actually going to move the needle for you. But again, if they're not ready or like you said, there's a lot of, a lot of people in their entourage that, they, that they're also having to deal with um on the flip side we get some athletes from 13 all the way until they're you know they're, with a national team we get a long time with players and so it's easy a lot easier to build buy-in when i you've known the kids since they were 13 so mm-hmm. for you then in terms of being able to implement the things you wanted to implement you know you touched on it a little bit there but what were some of the ways you could go about trying to layer in you know i imagine you've got a list of all these things you're trying to get done with each athlete and yet you know, your ideal list and what you can actually achieve is, is always difficult to match up. So how did, what were some strategies or ways that you could go about doing that with, with guys when you didn't have a lot of time, um, you know, FaceTime with them?
5: Yeah. I, I think it all started with how we approach things as a performance staff with what we were trying to accomplish and then what we were trying to capture, because now we're in the day of age with everything is sports science, rehab focused um not a lot of it's it's slowly straying away from just optimizing health and performance and really like protecting the athlete at the same time like they're going to be exposed to crazy things when they train and and perform on game days like we have to get them ready Um, so the data that we were collecting just trying to make sense of all right what are we collecting and how do i make an informed decision using this to try to get my point across to the player now whether it was directly just contacting them like say hey I have an idea you know do you want to listen and, and and talk about it and I was very fortunate with the role that I had and this isn't always going to be the same you know the college or pro level where I was also a coach too which adds that layer like I was talking about there's already a little bit of respect already given and so my role was very performance and health focused it wasn't there wasn't much with logistics and food service and making X, Y, and Z. It was, all right, I'm going to know A to Z of what's going on. I'm going to try to look at your systems as a whole from top to bottom. And how, what do we do to optimize this, knowing that based on the measurements we have on you, what the demands of your position are, your history, your injury history, uh, what you're going to be experiencing, like this is going to help you be a more effective player because you know of what you've experienced in the past and whatnot, but also... Leveraging those relationships with a medical staff that had been there, you know, for 40 years. And Ronnie's been there for 40 years, which is ridiculous. He has
1: a lot of, you
5: know, he's one of the biggest names in athletic training. And then from the performance side, we got great buy-in because of the way Aaron put everything together. I think the players recognize like, okay, we're going to be pushed hard in the weight room, but there's a reason for it. It's not some cookie cutter program. Um, We're going to individualize and tailor it based on position group, based on each individual player's needs with everything that we're capturing. And to go along with that, nutrition was a big part of that too.
1: Fantastic. Well, I hope you enjoyed these short clips from last year's inaugural football performance nutrition summit. Our second FPN summit launches today. It's going to run from June 13th to 15th. We've got 14 tremendous speakers for this event. You can join us just register for free at athleteperformancenutritioncom nutrition.com forward slash summits and gain access to all those talks that's athlete nutrition.com forward slash summits and you'll be forward the links to join those sessions if you can't make it the sessions will be available for purchase after the event all right have a great week hope to see you there thanks for listening to the performance nutrition podcast as always, I appreciate you taking the time. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. It's a big help to the show and keeps us attracting the best of the best in performance nutrition. All right, see you next time.